What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I was on a plane going to a high threat meeting in the Indian Ocean and there was a storm and the plane started to go out of control and the lights went out and people were screaming and the plane was spinning sideways heading toward the water and all I could see was I had three little boys at home and my youngest one wasn't even a year old and I, I just thought I could see them so clearly in my head and I felt really profoundly sad that they were going to grow up without a mother. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode, The Art of Collecting Intelligence. My guest today, Emily Hikade, is not a household name. That's by design. Because she really couldn't be. For years. That's because no one, not her family, not her friends, knew her actual job. It wasn't until recently, after she'd started her own company, after she'd had her cover lifted, that they found out she'd been a case officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA is not why she's my guest today. I'm going to let Emily tell most of her own story of starting her business, Petite Plume, but I'll preface it by saying that while she was serving the country abroad, she had a traumatic experience and decided to try to change her life, to support her children, and to do so by beginning on a totally different path. It's a line of work that's a far cry from fighting terrorism, but some days she can see some parallels. Long before she started her company, Petite Plume, and long before starting her first career in Washington, Emily Hikade was a kid with a knack for sales. I remember when I was about in, I want to say third grade, I went to the this little Roscoe's Pharmacy that was our little neighborhood shop. And I would buy like some pens or I would buy them for a dollar and I would sell them to my friends for like a dollar 25, you know, to sort of help supplement my uh, minimal allowance that I would get. But it's funny because I had forgotten about that for many, many years. But then looking back, it was like, yes, there was that part of it because I had access to this little corner store that other people didn't. And I had access to not only glitter pens, but jelly bracelets. Ooh. Yeah. Those were hot items back in the 90s. I'd advise little Emily to work on her margins, but that sounds that sounds really I agree. great. <laughs> I agree. Those margins aren't going to get me on podcasts, but they were a good start for a for a fourth grader. Fantastic. So tell me, um, and I, I think this will, based on your story, be a central kind of question of the episode. Tell me about your career. Um, you had you had a long career before you started your company, um, and and a fascinating one. Oh goodness. So yeah, uh, I actually. Uh, prior to launching Petit Plume, or while I was launching Petit Plume, I was actually working as a case officer with the Central Intelligence Agency. Tell me about that. How did you start with the agency and give me like the broad strokes of your of your career, whatever you can talk about? I know your cover has been lifted at this point, um, but yeah, tell me what you can. So I worked for 
when I lived overseas, we moved to the Chicago area in 2018. But prior to that, I lived in nine different countries in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa, including uh, I was one of the first ones on the ground in Baghdad after the invasion. So I speak four languages. I speak English, French, German, and after 9-11, I learned Arabic. I had started learning Russian on September 10th, 2001. I had one class, and then everything switched to Arabic. We had very few Arabic speakers um, on 9-11, which was surprising that, you know, 20 years later, there are so many kids coming out of college that speak Arabic on quite a fluent level that by the end of my career with the agency, you know, I was using my French a lot more than anything else. There's not as many fluent French speakers out there. You know, I think in our own country now, they're pushing Spanish and Chinese and Arabic, which is fantastic. But French is still very much a diplomatic language. And it brought me to all these glamorous parts of the world like Madagascar and Mauritius and Chad and Algeria and Morocco and all these um, parts of the world that you don't think about, but they do all speak French. Tunisia. That wartime was such a formative time for so many people in their careers. Um, you know, I actually met my husband in an Arabic class as we were, we were young journalists in New York City, and that was that was the language to learn, you know, at that, at that moment in time. It really was. It's yeah. the language of love. <laughs> Habibi. Exactly. <laughs> I remember that. The story of founding your your company is wrapped up in that time. You you were still abroad when you were inspired to start a company, um, and it had a really specific origin story that I think it's a little traumatic. But um, if you wouldn't mind telling it, I'd love that. So I um I was working. My specialty was counterterrorism, and as you can imagine, that involves certain inherent dangers. And I was on a plane going to a high threat meeting in the Indian Ocean. And there was a storm and the plane started to go out of control. And the lights went out and people were screaming and the plane was spinning sideways, heading toward the water. And all I could see was I had three little boys at home and my youngest one wasn't even a year old. And I I just thought I could see them so clearly in my head and I felt really profoundly sad that they were going to grow up without a mother. I can't tell the story without being right back on that airplane. And one of the worst days of my life was also one of the most profound because, you know, I took a lot of dangers myself and it was quite easy when I was single and when I didn't have children that relied on me. But I always felt terrible when, because they never chose that line of work. They never chose that lifestyle where we would move every few years. My my eldest son just started high school, and it's his 13th school. Wow. So let's call that plane ride an aha moment. I wish it would have been a little bit more subtle. It was sort of like in my head, I had already had a bunch. I actually had a list of business ideas that I thought I had identified gaps in the U.S. market And I thought, okay, now is not the right time, but maybe one of these days I'll be able to launch a business. Well, as the plane was careening toward the ocean, I thought, you know, there's never a good time to start a business, but now is as good a time as any. And I had a full-time job. I had three little boys at home. It wasn't perfect timing, but I don't think there's ever a perfect time for a pivot. But if you start You know, what do they say? A journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step and you put one foot in front of the other and pretty soon you have momentum. And, you know, if you're determined and you're resilient, 
I think you you can't go wrong. I think that really is the recipe for success. That's amazing. Well, that's one hell of a jumpstart to the momentum right there. Um, so you had this list of ideas. Um, was this in your mind sort of a way to get back to the U.S., a way to start a new life? I think it was a way to find safety for my family. And yeah. I, it's ironic because the company that I did decide to launch and in my head, as I was sitting at this precipice, before I remember launching the Shopify stores in 2015, I remember not thinking that I was about to launch a multi-million dollar company, but instead I was thinking that I just had to sell enough pajamas to replace my government salary, which is not an exorbitant amount. I think I had worked out exactly how many pajamas I had to sell per year in order to replace the government salary so that I could be able to keep myself safe for my children. Yes. Yeah, so you you imagined like a kind of cozy little business selling French style pajamas. Yes. I think that was it. And it was a challenge because we have all of these sleepwear laws in the U.S., which I didn't know about when I was crafting my uh, company plan. But I read an obituary of the gentleman who invented liquid soap, Robert Taylor, and it was just at the right time. And it said, every time he ran into a hurdle, he rejoiced because he knew half of his competitors had just quit. So by the time we got to launch, you know, we were in 200 stores in the first year because we had tested the sleepwear. We had made it without chemicals. We had proven it, everything, we had done everything right. So the runway was open. And in hindsight, let's talk about the margins that you mentioned a little earlier, is that I think the other bigger companies probably were smart enough not to go into children's luxury pajamas at that point because the margins aren't there, because they're like, this is not worth our time and effort. But that's the beauty of naivete, because every time we set, made a pajama set for kids, it was 12 SKUs, six to 12 months, all the way through size 14. And the profit margins, because of the expense of the fabric itself, plus we have to test all the fabric prior to import to make sure it hits all the U.S. laws, plus, you know, we have to make sure we're t like dotting all our I's and crossing all our T's. The margins are quite small compared to where they should be on your classic business where you have some slide to give to the major retailers, et cetera, et cetera. But as our orders grew and grew, our margins improved, but you know, there was always that next challenge around the corner. Right. I want to go back for just a moment and talk about the early days of actually starting to put the company together, starting to imagine the product, starting to source materials. Uh, I remember when we spoke previously, you said that you would wake up early in the morning, look for textile mills, do your day job, come home, put the kids to bed, make phone calls to US, the U.S. market. I mean, like, that sounds wild to me. And you had a fourth child somewhere in that timeline, too. <laughs> yeah. Moved countries. Have, between launching and moving back to the U.S., we moved to another country, had a fourth child. All of this continued to happen while, you know, I was starting to build this company, which when I look back on it, it is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> there were times when I would wake up, you know, so at night is when I would call our fulfillment center, you know, or I was handling customer service early on. I was the only employee. So you know, I was seven hours ahead of New York. So if somebody called at noon, they certainly were still expecting a call back that day. Or if I had to set up calls with a fulfillment center or whatnot. So I was really on after the kids got, to, I would shut off my phone during dinner when I could. And then I would get back on after they got to bed and just make those phone calls 
to make sure everything was working as smoothly as possible. So then you you mentioned the flame retardant standards in in the U.S. That um, your your pajamas they're they're these like beautiful. Just to describe to the audience, um, they're like organic cotton pajamas. Uh, the kind of loose fitting, almost vintage styled. You imagine them as European. Um, there's something you might see and actually have seen princes wear, right? So these did not fit U.S. Um, standards at first. How did you how did you get over that hurdle? So it was you know it's funny that. When um, polyester was introduced to the market in the 70s and 80s, there was no flammability requirements. So literally, fabrics were being imported to the U.S. that were flammable. And back then, people smoked at a much higher percentage than they do now. So literally, kids were igniting. So what the U.S. government did is what it does often. It overcorrected to the other side where suddenly 100% cotton pajamas were also illegal because they didn't hit the flammability requirements. That includes being able to sustain a direct flame without igniting. For many seconds, right? I mean, for like a while. Three seconds, yes. Wow. It was three seconds. So it has to sustain a direct flame for three seconds without igniting. And typical cotton will ignite unless it's treated with chemicals. So we absolutely were not going to treat anything with chemicals. So we started to pioneer a new fabric that was created with the highest quality cotton and blended with an inherently flame retardant fiber. Try to think about like a tweaked wool. Wool has inherently flame retardant qualities. So we created this and our first sets of pajamas were actually made in the same factory that makes firemen's uniforms. Cool. So we sort of perfected it and made it softer and everything was yarn dyed. We didn't cut any corners. And that's why I think when we finally got to the market, we had created something special. That's amazing. Tell me your approach to growing the actual company um, that sells the product. You got into stores very quickly. Once the momentum started, you were doubling every year in revenue um, very quickly. And you did not have outside funding. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, Still to this day, it's still 100% founder-owned. We've been profitable since launch. And we're doubling in size every year, doubling in revenue. Okay, that's wild. So what was your secret secret from those beginning days? Did you hire the right people from day one? Did you have a whole pocket knife of advisors uh, to, to help you? How, how did you do that? I want to say that it was very lonely at first. I think I relied on several books that, you know, I got from Amazon through the uh, international mail. And, you know, I didn't know a lot of other business owners. I didn't know a lot of other apparel company owners. It was a difficult and challenging obstacle at the beginning. And so, but I, I, so I was reading the books and I was going one step at a time. I think that I have a level of resilience. I sort of had lived in the third world. So I knew sort of how to negotiate with the factories. I knew how to check the quality. You know, I had some uh, lucky connections in the U.S. Once people discovered our pajamas, they quickly recommended them to other people. Then I think one of the big game changers for me was starting to go to trade shows. So went to my first trade show in New York that was at the Javits Center, and I started meeting other business owners. And I started listening and asking questions and really starting to figure out what what challenges they were running into. Because I think um, you always dream about going into these really big retailers like Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's and Saks. But really, if you don't do the hard work at the beginning, you really have to be ready to go into those retailers or they actually can have 
driven companies out of business. If you go in and you don't really realize what the terms are, they have RTVs and buybacks that, you know, I've heard of companies who were thrilled to get a few million dollars worth of orders. And then at the end of the season, they said, well, in the contract, you're taking back everything that didn't sell. Therefore, you know, here's a million dollars worth of product back. Well, that company had already bought the next season's product. They didn't have the capacity because they hadn't read the contract. So I think you learn to be careful where you're going. You listen, you you talk. I think networking is absolutely critical. And if you there's any way that you're starting a company and you can go out and talk to other people that are at your level or ahead of you, I think that is worth its weight in gold so that you can work smarter and not harder and maybe not step in the same puddles that some of these other companies have stepped in. And then you can pay that forward and help other companies that are at that spot or other CEOs or other people who are asking and saying, well, what did you do here? And I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I've always kind of put that out there to say, well, this is kind of the direction or I would recommend doing that or being careful with this. Secondly, I think it was really important because I started this company. I, I still had another job. I learned how to do everything myself. I learned how to do the importing. I learned how to do production. I learned how to do retail and negotiate. And on some level that really helped because then as I started to hire for those positions, I knew exactly what I was hiring into. And my best advice to anybody who's starting a small company is to hire for your weaknesses. Yeah. You know, I knew right away there was gonna be no Emily designing a website. They didn't teach you that in the in the agency. They didn't. No. <laughs> what skills did did translate really well from the work you had done previously? Be it leadership or managing or just that massive multitasking that you seem to have been able to undertake. What is the same about you now and you 10, 20 years ago in terms of kind of your skills and what you do? That's funny. It wasn't that long ago. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it was, it feels like it was just yesterday. But um, I think one of the main things is that translates from my previous career and my current career from the agency to being the CEO of a company is the ability to think quickly on your feet. I think being able to respond to any situation that presents itself, risk mitigation is a very important part of life at the agency, as well as a CEO, kind of knowing what the risks are when you go into any situation and then being able to come up with the various responses. What if this happens? What if that happens? I also think that there's something about collecting intelligence that carries over from the agency to running your business in the same way that I said networking is key. Find out what everybody else is doing. What are their challenges? What are their successes, what's working for them, what's not working for them. That information collection that is critical to, you know, a case officer at the agency is just as critical to a CEO. When we come back, I'll talk with Emily about how her brand got a big boost from Prince George and Jimmy Fallon. But first, a quick break. You're growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. 
or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I love that. That's something I don't often hear, especially the risk mitigation. Is there any way that you would advise other founders think about risk mitigation or build that into their daily thought process? Um, you, you started to kind of break it down a little bit. I think that if you are, it's, it's ironic because I think that I went into this launching a company, being an entrepreneur, thinking that it was going to be less stressful than being a CIA officer. But I have <laughs> to think that in hindsight, <laughs> there's different stresses, yeah. different stresses. At the agency, you might walk into a meeting and be your stress levels could be really high for you know a certain amount of time, and then you're you know at then you're writing up your meetings and it's really low stress levels. I think that when you are running a company, it's growing. You're always running into new challenges. The same challenges that I had when we launched eight years ago are not the same challenges that I have now. So I think that you're always risk mitigating. For example. Um, you know, you get insurance on your inventory. You get insurance on your warehouse. You know, we had a stolen truck in January that resulted in over a million dollars worth of lost inventory. That's a risk, but we had mitigated that because we had insurance coverage. And it is not ideal. I wasn't thrilled with the news, but there was, it also didn't devastate me in any way because you, we were already prepared for that. And then here's our next steps. Here's where we're going. Here's where you want to take risks and here's where you don't want to take risks. You know, if you expand into different categories, you might want to start small. And if you see traction, then you can start to move heavily into that area. And I think that's another part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you think of yourself as an optimist or a pessimist? Oh, 100% an optimist. Uh-huh. I think that I don't, I heard somebody say that a pessimist would never start a company. Oh, interesting. Because they would never get it off the ground because they would see everything that could go wrong. Where, and I heard somebody said to me, an entrepreneur thinks that they can turn any no to a yes. So it's, and that's probably very similar to an agency officer where you just think, okay, here we are, we're going forward. Absolutely an optimist because you think of what the possibilities if you see a big mountain in front of you, it's not whether or not you're going to climb it, it's how you're going to climb it. You're going to go around the side, you're going to go straight up, whatever. There is no stopping to that. I, I believe that um, 100% most entrepreneurs are optimists. All right. Something I've been dying to ask is, how did you approach marketing and that word of mouth that you spoke about? How did all of a sudden we see little Clooney's in your pajamas, all of a sudden, you know, celebrities wearing wearing your clothes? Well, I think the first and foremost, I focused on quality, the quality mm-hmm. of the product itself. I um, wanted to build something special that was heirloom quality. We didn't cut corners. We used yarn dyed fabrics, et cetera. Like we really did put a very good quality product together. So when it did hit the market, I think it was, there was a white space in the market at that point. And then I think social media helped incredibly because People love taking pictures of their kids, oftentimes more than they like taking pictures of themselves. So you take pictures of your kids in these cute looking pajamas, you know, at Christmas or at Easter or whenever they're, you know, at Hanukkah. It's adorable. So we started to get people taking pictures of their kids. Did this? So the first big one was Prince George was wearing our pajamas when he met President Obama in this iconic photo that went viral. And we had no idea that this was happening. We weren't involved in 
positioning this. You didn't plant that. You didn't you didn't see send them samples or no? But I would have if I knew where to even send them. Absolutely I would have. But that was a really big moment for Petite Plume. And it just kind of continued apace. It was like we got lucky that Jimmy Fallon started, he had written a children's book and he was gifting all of these A-list celebrities his book along with a pair of petite plume pajamas, along with some rattles made from a Brooklyn company. So there was this little gift basket that was going around to Jessica Alba and Mindy Kaling and Gigi Hadid. And and they were taking pictures of it and and it was kind of spreading through social media with, um, and I think it was just because the quality of the product and how cute everyone's kids are. (laughs) Right, right. That's fantastic. I mean, nothing cuter than kids in jammies. So (laughs) it started out as a luxury children's sleepwear brand, which is why it was so challenging. And then shortly thereafter, people came to us and said, can you please make adult pajamas? The quality is so amazing. Can you please make something for adults? And that was a no, I mean, that was so easy compared to kids. Um, Adults are a hundred percent cotton. We don't treat it with any chemicals. Everything's here. It was much better profit margins than certainly all of this testing that goes into the the children's pajamas. So we then launched adult pajamas in 2017 and they took off. And now we sell more adult pajamas than we do kids pajamas. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And tell me where where the company is today. How many employees do you have? How many stores are you in? Uh, Revenue, that sort of thing. So we are in over a thousand stores. Uh, across the country, and we're growing quickly. We're at Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale, Saks, Nordstrom, but we're also in a lot of independent retailers across the country. So I welcome our listeners to go into their local store, and we're, we're in a lot of those, and those are the best ones. Those are the ones that we spend a lot of time and energy supporting as well. During the pandemic, we, when the stores, the, our little boutiques were really st- suffering, we gave them our collections before we launched them on our website. We gave them, we we tried to give them the advantages that we could because I felt like we were in this together. And when they succeeded, we succeeded. We are upwards of 50 employees climbing fast. We do contract out what we can because it just seems to be the smartest thing to do. And then we are, we have passed 10 million in revenue and we're heading quickly to a hundred million. Like I said, we're doubling every year. Uh, it's an exciting place to be at. But when you're growing that quickly, you're also hiring a lot. You're also trying to stop the holes in the canoe before they you know, get exacerbated. Or because when you're growing that quickly, you have to make sure you're building the factory capacity, the fulfillment center capacity, the um, inventory. There's so much that goes into that. And at the same time, growth takes capital. I just want to touch on that for a minute because I think you know, it might be, um, if somebody's new to this industry, it's like, if you, let's say you're hitting a million dollars in revenue and it takes you 500,000 to get there, you can walk away with 500,000 and you think you're feeling pretty good about that. But the reality is if you, if that you got to 1 million with that 500,000 next year, you're going to get to 2 million, you need 1 million and you're $500,000 short. So now you have to go out to banks and get loans or you need to get a partner on board because your growth is so quick. And so for many years, I wondered what I was doing wrong because I was always short on money. I was like, what, what am I doing wrong? And it's just that our growth was so exponential that 
I mean, growth takes capital and that until you sell a part of it or until the growth slows down, that's kind of the situation that you're at. You're not buying fancy houses and fancy cars. You're (laughs) in the middle of the hustle with your head down and working hard and, you know, pushing it forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's your vision for the future? What are your, what are your dreams and goals now? for the company and for yourself. You're not going to just like quit and become a concert pianist or something, like do something again, totally out of left field. <laughs> no, I think, I think concert, I like that idea. I, like that <laughs> um, I think my, my next career will be somewhere like rescuing dogs or something a little smaller, a little closer to home. No, I think the next step is actually building this into an empire. We're get, getting very ready to open our first stores there's so many directions we're heading into. We're heading into home. We have candles. We have 100% cotton sheets that are the softest you've ever felt. We are expanding into um, bridal and hospitality and maternity. And we have some exciting collaborations coming. So I'm really excited because I feel like we are just getting started, Christine. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations. And I can't wait to see what you do. Me too. I'm looking forward to that. And there's some other things in the works too. Maybe, maybe a book. I Ooh. haven't approached um, something to that effect, but I'm still sort of in a fog with all of these different steps. I, I have been um, uh, undercover for a long time. So the idea that I'm even just talking about it, Christine, it was four months ago that my kids didn't even know where I worked. So I'm still adjusting. Yes. <laughs> That makes absolute sense. Well, thank you so much today for telling your story, Emily. I really appreciate it. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. You had such great questions. I enjoyed every minute of it. After speaking with Emily... What has continued to amaze me was that it wasn't just her ability to assess risk or to gather intelligence that really helped her get her business off the ground. It was her courage and her decisiveness. It takes a certain fearlessness to just dive into something you've never done before, knowing perhaps some of the amount of work and the research it's going to take. And that's precisely what Emily decided to do. She didn't know everything, Like that she'd be running a self-funded, extremely fast-growing business in mere years' time. But here she is. And she's facing every day with optimism and a sense of humor, too. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Our producer, who also sends gift boxes to Jessica Alba and Gigi Hadid, but weirdly has never gotten a response, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. <laughs>